The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Maya Nicholson, Internet Lawfare, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for February 24th, 2024. On February 16th, Russian authorities reported that opposition leader and activist Alexei Navalny died of natural causes while in prison. The circumstances surrounding Navalny's death have raised suspicions amongst the international community, with President Biden saying there was no doubt that Vladimir Putin's government was responsible for the dissident leader's death. For today's archive episode, in light of Navalny's death and the United States planning to implement major sanctions against Moscow in response, I chose an episode from September 15, 2020. In the episode, Benjamin Wittes sat down with Alina Polyakova to discuss the poisoning of Navalny by the Putin regime in 2020. They discussed Navalny's recovery, the opposition leader's long history of challenging Putin, why Putin chose to poison Navalny instead of harming or potentially killing him by other means, and more. Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 15th, 2020. Alexei Navalny is Russia's most prominent dissident, opposition leader, and anti-corruption crusader, and the latest such person to be poisoned by the Vladimir Putin regime, which of course denies doing so. Navalny's condition, as we record, is improving, He is in Germany getting medical treatment and joining me in the virtual jungle studio to discuss his career and why Putin chose now to attack him is Alina Polyakova, president and CEO of the Center for European Policy Analysis. We talked about how Navalny has become such a thorn in the side of the Putin regime about why Putin keeps poisoning people as opposed to killing them by other means, and why the Russians are so ineffective at poisonings when they undertake them. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 15th, Alina Polyakova on the poisoning of Alexei Navalny. So, Alina, I want to start before we get to the poisoning of Alexei Navalny with who he is and why uh, the Putin regime would want to poison him. So Alexei Navalny has emerged as probably the only more recognizable Russian opposition leader in Russia today. Uh, over the years, the Kremlin has basically eliminated through murder of Boris Nemtsov back in 2015, uh, through harassment, 
um, and other ways of you know signaling to people that we don't want you here um, if you're going to oppose us. And Alexei Navalny is really one of the few who's remained in Russia and who over the years has branded himself as an anti-corruption activist and has been really a thorn in the Kremlin side by using non-traditional media, meaning not state media to which he has no access to uh, in Russia, uh, by using YouTube, of course, uh, which is still available in Russia. And some of his videos exposing some corruption and illegal practices by those very, very close to Mr. Putin, like the former Prime Minister Medvedev, have gotten millions and millions in views and uh, sparked you know, responses in videos. So really a social media campaign. But most recently, he was orchestrating a countrywide, nationwide uh, sort of opposition movement against the Kremlin in a really interesting way. And I think in many ways, this last move by him, which we can talk about, that happened in the previous Russian presidential elections in 2018 and then replicated at the local level, I think has made the Kremlin incredibly nervous. And we can talk a little bit about what that was that his uh, anti-corruption group has been doing. But basically, Alexei Navalny has been a stalwart in Russia, very outspoken, has garnered increasing support nationwide, despite having no access to reach Russian people you know, on major media, which still dominates how most Russians get their information. And over the years, uh, he has not run away. He has stayed in Russia. And that has made him, I think, a real problem for the regime. And what is his background? Is he just, is he just a YouTuber? Or is he, I mean, like, you know, how, how do you become a prominent dissident opposition figure who talks on YouTube about uh, corruption? Uh, is YouTube sort of the the platform that made him or did he leverage some other fame to uh, the YouTube platform? I think YouTube and other social media has sort of become platforms of last resort. There's very few places in Russia today for you know free speech, obviously, as the state has really clamped down on that. So actually, Navalny has been involved in politics for a very long time. He was a member of local councils. He tried to start a, did start a political party, of which he was the leader of at the time. Uh, he ran for the mayoral uh, seat of Moscow, which is a very critical seat, and was, in fact, and has been for a very long time, many years, uh, a politician in his own right, but he has basically been cut out of his ability to be involved in formal politics, you know, starting a party. Basically, all the Russian opposition parties have been, in one way or another, sort of destroyed or incredibly weakened uh, by the regime over the years. And so, in a way, he has sought out what is the only remaining space in which he can still have influence. And it's, it's important to know that he probably would be running for office and probably would have run uh, against Putin in 2018. But over the years, the Russian authorities, the government authorities, have put up all of these politically motivated trumped-up charges against him and convicted him of you know, things like tax fraud. They threw his brother in jail uh, for a very long time as sort of collateral. That was the understanding anyways, that you stay quiet or we have your brother. So they've done various ways to prevent him from running. In fact, he was charged 
uh, with a crime, I believe it was a federal crime in Russia, that legally prevents him uh, from running for office. So he's really been cut out of any ability to do what he actually probably wants to do, which is run for political office. So you referred to his uh, having recently started a campaign that was particularly troubling to the regime. Tell us about that. So what was really interesting is, in a way, you know, I mentioned that there's so little space left in Russia today for any sort of political opposition to the Kremlin. Um, And one thing uh, that Navalny and those that support him, those anti-corruption group, uh, have been really good at is finding ways to get around the system. And one way they've done this is by something that in English they call uh, smart voting. And they've done this at the local level. Uh, So in the local council elections in Moscow, what they were basically doing is encouraging people to just not vote for Putin. So it's not vote for me, um, Alexei Navalny, he can't run, or vote for you know, my replacement, so to say. But they started a campaign, a sort of protest movement to either vote for no one at all, uh, so go to the polls but vote for no one, or uh, vote for any potential opposition leader who is running in the local elections that has the greatest chance of defeating the Kremlin-picked opposition leader. And so that sent a signal to the Kremlin that in Moscow, um, after this campaign, um, it actually really hurt the Kremlin's you know, hand-picked local council members that they were running. I uh, gave the opposition one of their best results in a really long time. Um, and they were trying to replicate this across Russia. And of course, you know, one thing is important to note is that this is all happening in this very broad context of increasing unrest in Russia. So we know Navalny was poisoned uh, just recently uh, because he too, he was on a local flight uh, within Russia. And he was coming from uh, a Russian region where uh, he and his group had been setting up offices. They've been getting shut down by the Russian secret services in this battle for, for the last several years. And they've been becoming much more involved in local politics elsewhere. And of course, in Russia's far east, uh, there have been ongoing protests um, in Habarovsk now for you know over a month, uh, where they have turned incredibly political, have been very anti-Putin, and so I think the combination of internal unrest, ongoing protests, Navalny's determination to not give up, has probably led to this escalation by the Kremlin today. All right. So that brings us to uh, the poisoning itself for those uh, listeners who are not up to speed on it. Uh, What do we know about what happened? How confident are we that Navalny was in fact poisoned as opposed to becoming sick by other means? And how is he doing? Well, what we know is that, as I mentioned, Navalny was taking a flight within Russia, um, heading back to Moscow, and he gets sick on the flight. Uh, Nobody knows why, but he's in incredible pain. Uh, The plane has to land in emergency, and then uh, he basically goes into a coma and is taken to a local hospital. And then for several days, you know, those are supporting him. He has a large social media following, you know, are tweeting uh, about what's happening to him, that he's basically more or less being held by the authorities. They're not giving access to any international doctors. Then Germany steps in uh, to offer help 
to the Russian government, to the Russian medical uh, professionals who are taking care of Navalny. And eventually, with political pressure, uh, Navalny is released into the hands of uh, German medical doctors who transfer him to Berlin, to one of the best hospitals, research hospitals in Germany. And there, uh, through the investigation that is carried out, we find out that indeed Navalny has been poisoned. And not only that, uh, the agent that the German authorities and doctors identify is no other than Navichok, which is the same nerve agent uh, that the British government identified in the poisoning of Sergei Skripal and his daughter in Salisbury, uh, which caused a huge diplomatic row, and the Kremlin never, of course, admitted any responsibility for it. Um, so now we see a situation in which the most prominent, most vocal Russian opposition leader is poisoned with the same nerve agent that we know the GRU, the Russian Military Intelligence Agency, had used in the poisoning of Sergei Skripal in the UK. So we are recording this on Thursday morning, D.C. time. As of now, how is he doing? Well, as of now, uh, we know that he has been in critical but stable condition that seems to be improving. Um, He has come out of a coma that was a medically induced coma. And that's the latest we've heard from the German authorities. But we have not heard from him. We obviously don't know what the long-term implications will be for his health. Uh, This nerve agent is extremely dangerous. Um, In fact, a British citizen died from it um, in the UK. Uh, Sergei Skripal and his daughter survived. Um, So we know very, very little about the potential long-term implications on Navalny's health, if he'll be able to actually return to his normal self after this or not. So uh, we're just watching the situation remains to be seen. All right. So I am interested in what the Russian government objective is with these poisonings. And so I want to tick through a few of them and have you speculate a little bit about what's going on. So Skripal was poisoned and survived. The partner of the founder of Pussy Riot, uh, Piotr, I forget his last name, was also poisoned and also survived, I believe, after treatment at the same German hospital that Navalny is in. And uh, Navalny has now been poisoned and uh, with the same nerve agent as uh, Skripal, taken to the same hospital as the other guy, and also appears, although he is not out of the woods, uh, he is not dead, and he does seem to be improving. And so my question is, are the Russians, they have access to these incredibly sophisticated biological chemical weapons, and uh, they use them aggressively in violation of international law and violation of the sovereignty of other countries, but they actually don't seem to manage to kill people most of the time with them. And so my question is, are they completely incompetent uh, with poisoning people, or are they trying to do something other than kill their opponents? That is, I think, the crux of the issue we're discussing right now. And Piotr Verzilov, that was the name of the Pussy Riot uh, member who was poisoned, 
uh, and blame the Kremlin for it. And just to note, I mean, these are the most prominent examples, but not the only ones. Uh, Vladimir uh, Karamurza, who uh, left Russia um, and resides in the United States and was very close to the murdered Russian opposition leader Boris Nemtsov, was also poisoned twice (laughs) and survived both times. So that just goes to your point, Ben, that just, you know, the Russian secret services who we assume are responsible for all of this uh, just don't seem to be either doing their job uh, and they're completely incompetent because if their job was to get rid of these people because they're a thorn in the Kremlin's side, you know, there's other ways of doing it, uh, or are they trying to send a message? Um, So I think what's so uh, interesting but also frustrating about these kinds of covert Kremlin ops is we never really know if they're trying to send a message and they sort of want to get caught. And that goes for everything they've done recently from the interference in the U.S. elections where they got caught, the poisoning of Skripal that we're talking about where they just got caught uh, spectacularly um, and were identified specific agents' names were identified who were involved in Skripal poisoning by an independent organization, not even by the British Secret Services. Uh, So they're spectacularly incompetent. And then, of course, now we have the most recent example with Navalny. And, you know, if we look back in uh, the history of Russian government's assassinations of journalists, of other opposition leaders, they have been very successful uh, very, very unfortunately, and carried out quite horrendous assassination acts. Boris Nemtsov, I mentioned, was murdered uh, in 2015, just a few hundred meters away from the Kremlin with a drive-by shooting. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of 
called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. And of course, when, when the Russians want to engage in poisonings successfully, uh, they are, you know, there's the famous ricin-tipped umbrella incident where, you know, the KGB injected uh, ricin into a... Bulgarian dissident and left him to die. Um, you know, these are not people who don't know how to poison people. By the way, poisoning people isn't even very hard if you can get them to ingest things. And so my question is, how do you explain this long string of 
poisonings that are successful in getting to people, successful in sickening them, successful in threatening their lives, but that on a fairly consistent basis don't seem to kill them. Yeah, and I mean, the list, the list could go on and on. I mean, I'll just mention the polonium poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko in the UK now many, many years ago. So, yes, I think the pattern that we see emerging, to me, clearly signals it's not just the desire to get rid of someone, because you can do that in other ways. They're much more straightforward, um, as was the case of Boris Nemtsov and many other journalists who were just murdered um, in cold blood. Uh, so why do this, I think, is the question. And to me, it seems very clear there's a desire not just to get rid of a single person, but to send a message to others. It's interesting that in almost all of these attempts, they use agents like Novichok, which can only really come from Russia, can only really come from the former Soviet states. They're not using you know, arsenic, right, uh, a sort of more generalized agent of some kind. They use polonium, which is a, um, an element that's pretty rare and difficult to use and doesn't have a great su- success rate, although they were successful in the murder of Alexander Litvinenko with polonium. And so it's clear they're trying to send a message. Whether they're trying to purposely fail, meaning they're not trying to kill these people, um, they're just trying to send a message and make them feel ill, I don't think that's the case. I do think they're trying to actively kill these opposition leaders and journalists and others. But these nerve agents are, and other substances are not so easy to control, as we've learned, and they're failing to do that. But the reason they're using these very detectable, very traceable uh, substances is to make it very obvious that we can do whatever we want, and we're just going to keep denying it, which is, of course, what the Kremlin is doing today against German and other accusations, pointing the finger to them, at them for Navalny's poisoning. Uh, and so they're trying to send a message to others who might want to speak out against the Kremlin, others who may uh, want to turn on the Kremlin and, let's say, be an informant for other Secret Service agencies in the West. But I do think they're failing. I do think their desire is to get rid of these people. And that is what they're failing to do. And I think a lot of that comes from, yes, actually, there is quite a bit of incompetence when it comes to Russian covert ops. They tend to get caught, um, and they tend to be sloppy. And I, th- I thought it was really interesting that when the Skripal attempted murder uh, was uncovered in such a spectacular way, and the pictures of these GRU agents were all over the media and the social media, even in Russia, the interpretation of that in Russia, among Russians, was how low have we come that our intelligence agencies and the KGB used to be feared across the world for how good they were at this kind of work. And they were found out so easily. And it was this kind of, I don't know, national shame for, you know, the incompetence of even our secret services, you know, carrying out this horrendous act and just failing so spectacularly. So I think that's always the conundrum of Russia. It's always a combination of incompetence mixed with leaving a mark, a calling card, um, and the brazenness of then denying that and knowing that the United States or Europe and anyone else won't do anything about it. Um, And that's the lesson they've learned is that they can basically carry out these operations as they will. The person dies, doesn't die, doesn't matter that much. Everyone knows who's done it, but nobody's really willing to make them pay the price. 
All right. So I want to focus on this other anomaly that you just referred to, which is the flamboyance of it up to and including leaving a chemical calling card, right? Novichok is not ricin. It's not potassium cyanide. It's not botulinum toxin. These are things that people can synthesize anywhere in the world. These kind of more esoteric nerve agents are a Russian calling card and they can be tracked and the Russians know that they can be tracked chemically and that they are only Russian. And so when you use a an agent like that, it's a little bit like using a predator drone. I, I mean, it's it, it is known who did it, even if you don't confirm it. But unlike a predator drone where, you know, the United States conducts a drone strike and either acknowledges it or says nothing about it, but it doesn't deny it, right? Here you have this pattern of this flamboyant activity combined with insistent denials. So uh, reconcile that for me. Either you're proud of it and you want to leave a calling card or you're ashamed of it and you want to deny that you had a role in it, what is the role of the comp- the two in combination doing concurrently? So if I may, Ben, I think what you just described is a really rational view of how you might as a country or as a, you know, as a bloodthirsty authoritarian regime uh, want to get rid of your enemies, Right. Or if you're engaged in warfare, how you may want to get rid of your enemies, i.e. with uh, drone strikes, and we know who did it, and there's no hiding it. That's really not how uh, things work in Russia. That's not how they work in terms of Russian foreign policy and their activities and covert ops when it comes to things like information influence operations or cyber attacks. And that's not how they work in these more targeted covert ops as well. Well, we see across the board when it comes to especially the GRU operations is that they seem to want to leave a calling card. Again, we don't really know, obviously. Is it a desire to get caught because they don't care? I think in the poisoning attempt, that is definitely the case because why else would you use Novichok um, or other very identifiable agents? Or, you know, is it the desire to maintain plausible deniability? And that desire to maintain that in the face of quite obvious evidence, I think is what at the end of the day they're looking for. This has been the case in almost every single identified Russian military intelligence operation that we know about over the last years. It goes all the way from some of the Wagner Group operations that we've seen in the Middle East, um, in Syria especially, some of the proxy PMCs we've seen active in Africa, the information influence operations in the United States. It all carries that same intent, which is we're covering up our steps, but at the end we don't really care if you find out because it's in your face, but we're still going to deny it. And that is in itself what they're trying to achieve. So the Russian strategic view and tactical operating procedures are sort of in the gray zone. They're ambiguous, purposely so. You know, I think in the West, we like to think, you know, here's a problem, here's a solution. We're going to implement and carry it out. 
it's a straightforward, rational approach. And that is really not how things tend to work in Russia. And again, it's always a mix of incompetence, <laughs> I think, and um, an intent to send a message. But I think the reason why it's been so difficult for us in the West to respond to these kinds of operations, and this is why they're actually very good, despite the incompetence, um, is because we don't know how to deal with an actor like this. We don't know how to deal with an actor that does all these things at once, as you said, that isn't functioning in this sort of uh, rational way, if you will, in which you know, we tend to think about foreign policy actions and covert operations. And what if Donald Trump were of a mind to respond appropriately to this? What would an appropriate American response look like? I mean, this is, after all, the attempted murder. It's not like the Skripal poisoning, right? It's not on the territory of an ally. Alexei Navalny is not somebody, uh, except in the sense that the United States has an interest in democratic reforms in general, He's not somebody, uh, I mean, this really is the internal politics of the Russian Federation. You know, should this be something that the U.S. government responds to in a serious way? And what would a serious response to it look like? Well, the quick answer is yes. But I think it's not just about Navalny. You know, there, there's a pattern here that we've been talking about. And it's not just a pattern of poisoning. It's a pattern of state-sponsored murder of opposition leaders and at this point, uh, the numbers are, you know, I've lost count of how many journalists have died, how many opposition leaders have been killed um, and were poisoned in this case and barely survived. It is a pattern of ruthless behavior that is very clearly being directed by the Kremlin and perhaps by Mr. Putin himself. And I will say that we've done nothing so far. It hasn't just been the Trump administration, although this administration hasn't put out a statement as of recording time, an official statement condemning this from the White House. The State Department has made a statement, but the White House is not. I think as an obvious first step, just say something about it and call the Russians out on this. But I think going further than that, one thing that people have been talking about for a very long time, because this pattern has been there for a long time, is that we can take pretty specific steps to undermine specific individuals that are in the Kremlin elite that we know are probably involved in this decision-making process. And we could do that with targeted sanctions that would perhaps uh, freeze their assets, not allow them to have access to certain bank accounts, property rights, etc. Almost every individual uh, within the Kremlin elite has offshore bank accounts, owns assets and property, real estate, you know, all over the world, um, but in some very specific places like London, like the United States, um, and likely elsewhere that we don't know about. And so we have a lot that we can do to really make it pretty painful uh, for these people and send a very clear message, but we haven't. I think Germany here uh, will be interesting to see, given what Merkel has said about Navalny, she made a very strong statement, this was unacceptable behavior, uh, which we really haven't heard from Merkel before. But uh, we haven't seen Germany pull out of this very lucrative for the Russian side Nord Stream 2 pipeline. It's been incredibly controversial that the United States, this administration, and the Obama administration disapproved of. 
but we haven't seen the German government do anything about it. Um, and I think that comes from putting, you know, the, ru- the relationship with Russia, uh, the price of gas, perhaps, on which Germany is dependent on Russian gas, uh, above, you know, morals and above ethics to a certain extent. But we certainly, there's a lot that we should do and that we can do. But for years, we've let this behavior just go basically unpunished. You know, one of the things that the president's defenders have said is that while Trump you know, uh, makes nice verbally to Putin. In fact, the actions of the Trump administration have been substantially tougher than its predecessors. Do you expect that U.S. reaction will get tougher if Joe Biden is elected and inaugurated? Or is the stasis that we've seen on this and the sort of toleration that Putin has been shown a kind of more bipartisan feature of American policy than we sometimes acknowledge? I think it's very much the latter, and I think that's really unfortunate, meaning that you know, we've seen so-called resets uh, with Russia from multiple administrations in the United States. The Obama administration called it a reset, uh, but obviously the Bush administration right after 9-11 uh, wanted to work with Russia, overlooked a lot of bad behavior, and it's it's a pattern that we've seen across uh, both parties in the United States, where there is this sort of acknowledgement or perhaps common understanding that, look, we have to work with Russia, they're around, and we have to work with this particular regime, uh, meaning Mr. Putin's Russia, because they're not going anywhere. And as the argument goes, on top of that, you know, the real problem, and I've seen this emerge more and more in the policy debate, you know, the real problem is not Russia because, look, they're a big player, economically speaking. Uh, the real problem is China. And so what we really need to do is, you know, bring the Russians into the fold to help us build a common front against China. And I think this thinking is is deeply, deeply mistaken because we've tried it at least three times ac- across about 20 years and it's only produced bad outcomes. Obviously, the worst of which has been the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the continued occupation of, of Crimea. And so I'm not sure why we keep doing the same thing uh, when it obviously doesn't work. Uh, so my concern is that the election won't change that much, uh, although I certainly hope it will. I think uh, Joe Biden in the past when he was VP uh, was actually quite good and very sober minded on what the Kremlin is in his work on Ukraine. Uh, I think he did some very good things from a policy perspective when it came to Ukraine. But at the same time, the Obama administration carried out the reset, which then resulted um, with the Russians saying, no thanks to your reset, we're going to invade Ukraine. So I think I've seen this kind of thinking emerge, um, and it's a hotly debated issue. I am skeptical, though, because of the pattern we've seen for the last 20 years in the United States. Alina Polyakova, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, and today it's produced in cooperation with the Center for European Policy Analysis. Our audio engineer this episode is Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo. The Lawfare Podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. 
Our promotion for the podcast is you, and that means we need your help to spread the word. So leave us a rating and review, tweet us, share us on all the social media sites you use, and of course, go to thelawfarestore.com and buy merch. And as always, thanks for listening.